Welcome back to the West London Witch. This episode contains adult themes and stories about the lives of Victorian sex workers and may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is strongly advised. On June 4th, 1898, the Morning Oregonian printed a small segment entitled Smothered to Death, Mysterious Murder of a Mulatto Woman in Skagway. The graphic clip told the story of Ella D. Wilson, an African-American sex worker in the gold rush town of Skagway, Alaska. Ella lived in a tiny cabin in Holly Street, the red light district of the town. To call Ella's lodgings a cabin is generous. She likely lived and worked out of a tiny 10 foot by 10 foot room built out of rough wooden planks with zero insulation and little protection from the elements. On the morning of May 29, 1898, Ella was found in her bed. A pillowcase was over her head and was tied tightly around her neck. Her mouth was gagged and her wrists and ankles were bound together with the bed linens. Ella had been brutally smothered to death. The room was in chaos. Her money and jewelry were gone. Her trunk had been ransacked, and some reports say a gun and a pair of rubber boots were found by her bedside. All indicators that this was a robbery gone wrong. There was no report of sexual assault, but there are no reports that say that they even checked to see if she had been sexually assaulted. There were rumors around town that Ella had saved up over $2,000 in cash. That would equate to nearly $69,000 today. The supposed money was never found either. It's said that there is little likelihood that Ella could have possibly saved up that amount of money, but we really don't know. And it is likely that she did have some money in her humble home. It is also rumored that Ella's killing could have been retribution for the death of a laborer early in March of the same year. Ella has never been named as the shooter, but the theory is that a man was shot in Holly Street by an African-American woman over the alleged theft of the man's watch. And perhaps Ella's subsequent killing was an act of revenge. Regardless, Ella's murder has never been solved. And sadly, it wasn't unique. The violent abuse and death of gold rush sex workers was commonplace and rarely punished. A local madam of Skagway accused Jefferson Randolph Soapy Smith II of Ella's murder. He was an infamous gangster and confidence man in the frontier, known for his scams and organized crime operations in Alaska and Denver. There are many books, articles, and videos made about Soapy while Ella lives in tiny paragraphs with mixed, inconsistent retellings of her slaying. Ella was laid to rest in the Gold Rush Cemetery. A few grave plots down from her is the body of Soapy Smith, who died five weeks after Ella in a Gold Rush shootout. Ella is a tragic example of what the life of a Gold Rush sex worker looked like. Dangerous, difficult, and not as well documented as their male counterparts.
and welcome to episode 35 of The West London Witch, a podcast where we share stories about those moments when we find ourselves very much not alone. Through keeping an eye on the West London Witch stats, I can see that from the inception of the show, we have had a cluster of loyal listeners from the last frontier, Alaska. So, I set out to find a wonderfully chilling local story for you to enjoy. 90 miles north of Juneau is the seaside town of Skagway. Incorporated in 1900, the city was the gateway to the Yukon and Klondike gold mines. The best place in town for a lonely miner to get a drink, a dance, or some company was the Red Onion Saloon. Downstairs of the Red Onion was a bar and dance hall, and upstairs was a high-priced, top-shelf bordello. And amazingly, the Red Onion is still in operation today, not as a brothel, but rather a museum. Today, Corey, the curator of the Red Onion Brothel Museum, shares with us what life as a Victorian sex worker would have been like at the Red Onion, and why some of those workers may still be roaming the halls to this very day. I'm Rebecca Strazina, and this is The West London Witch, Episode 35, The Red Onion Saloon. So the Clinkett people um, have, they never lived here in Skagway. They did live in Dai, which is 11 miles out of town. It's kind of two bays over. And so the Clinkett people, from as far as I know, back during the gold rush, didn't live here in Skagway because they called this place the home of the North Wind. And today is a perfect example. The wind is howling through this valley. It runs sort of north to south and in the winter the wind blows from the north, and in the summer, it's a warmer wind that blows from the south. So I just want to acknowledge that the Clinkett people were here way before the um, European settlers arrived. So gold was never actually found here in Skagway, except for in the pockets of the miners. The gold was actually found up um, in the Klondike, which is near Dawson City, Yukon. Skagway and Dai were the gateways to the Klondike. So um, in the late 1890s, there was, or mid 1890s, there was a recession going on in the United States. And um, some people had come up prospecting around 1895, kind of thing. And they had discovered gold and um, they got their gold out of the Klondike on the steamship Portland, which sailed into Seattle in 1897. And the headlines read Steamship Portland sailed into Seattle with one ton of gold from the Klondike. One ton of gold was worth a lot of money back then. One ton of gold is worth a lot of money today, in fact. It roughly equates to around 55 to $60 million. This amount of money sailing into Seattle created a buzz, an excitement, a gold rush. Miners flocked to Alaska with the hopes and dreams of striking it rich. All kinds of people came up here, all walks of life, um, men, women, some children even. What they discovered was coming up to Skagway became the easiest way to access the Klondike. Um, and they would hike over the Chilkoot Trail, which is uh, 36 miles long. 
And then they would arrive at Lake Bennett and then that would um, put them onto the waterways that would bring them up to um, the Klondike. And that was about a 500 mile journey. It was really, really harsh. They would sometimes hire packers. Sometimes they would pack their own stuff. Um, the, you're crossing through Canada to go and do this. So the Mounties implemented that you had to have one ton of goods and they had a list of all the goods you had to carry to bring up there. Now you can hike the Chilkoot with a 35 pound pack and do it in five days. Back then, the easiest time to do it was in the winter. And it was just, there's like a, a picture you can find that is called the Golden Stairs. And it's people with these huge packs on their back, hiking basically one right after the other up the Golden Staircase. Skagway was a rough place to live back in 1898. It was essentially a boom town, a gold rush boom town from 1898 to 1900. The Red Onion Saloon operated as a brothel and a saloon and dance hall for those two years um, from 1898 to 1900. Town was, it was very difficult to make a living here, um, especially as a woman. If you were a respectable woman, you would try, you know, working in as a baker, a cook, a laundress, a seamstress, cigar shop, that kind of stuff. But you could only earn about $3 a day. And the cost of living up here was about $6 a day back then. So it was very difficult to make ends meet. So a lot of women turned to the world's oldest profession because there was 15,000 men roughly that were passing through here at any given time and only 300 ladies. So the odds were good that you could make a living doing the world's oldest profession. And so downstairs, um, we had saloon girls and they were the women who the miners would pay a dollar a dance for. And you would, you know, belly up to the bar and you could order shots of liquid courage. And of course the miner would buy, or the gentleman would buy her a shot of liquid courage while the bartender's going to give her water. Um, but he's going to pay for the gentleman's going to pay for a shot. She was making 25% of whatever the sales were that this guy was buying. So they found a way to make a living. And at a dollar a dance, you spend an evening dancing with a guy, you're going to make a little bit of money. Downstairs was dancing and conversation, and there was money to be made. But upstairs was where the real action took place. So back then, um, you would walk into this beautiful building with, with wood floors, which we still have the original wood floors in here. Those floors have seen a lot, if they could talk. And then you would come in, belly up to this beautiful wooden bar, look up behind the bar, and there's um, two diamond-shaped mirrors, and um, there'd be a row of 10 dolls. Now, these dolls were made to look like the ladies that were working upstairs. So, for example, mine would have had glasses and maybe a little messy bun on her head. Yours would be a nice little blonde. Or if my favorite color was red, I'd have a little red dress. If yours was blue, you'd have a little blue dress with ruffles. And that's how the gentleman knew which was his favorite gal and who he'd pick. And so he would have a couple shots of liquid courage, and then he would choose the doll of his choice. So then the bartender would take that doll who was sitting upright and lay her on her back. And that's how you knew she was going to be occupied for the next 15 minutes. The cost for a visit upstairs was $5 for 15 minutes. That $5 would be split between the madam, the woman in charge of the brothel, the bouncer, 
and the sex worker herself. The madam received $2.50, the bouncer $1.25, and the remaining $1.25 went to the women. This was a good wage for 15 minutes worth of work and so much more lucrative than working as a baker or a seamstress. Once he'd made his choice, he would walk up a, um, a ladder. It wasn't the staircase that we have here today that was put in um, to accommodate, you know, modern times and health codes and things like that. And he would climb the ladder, be met by a bouncer, and then he would be escorted to the chosen lady's room. Now, upstairs, it was divided, it was 10 rooms, five rooms on either side of a long, narrow hallway that ran the length of the building. So the bouncer would knock on the ladies, the chosen lady's door. He would, the gentleman would enter and thus began his five minutes, or 15 minutes, pardon me. Now the first rule of prostitution comes into play automatically, and that is you've got to pay before you play. So the gentleman would offer her $5 in gold nuggets or gold coins. She would make sure that it was real and authentic, weigh it, that kind of thing. And then she would drop it in a hole in the floor that was connected by copper tubing to the cash register behind the bar. At the end of 15 minutes, which was roughly about three songs in the dance hall, the bouncer would unceremoniously bang on the door. The gentleman would decide if he would like another 15 minutes at the cost of $5, or he'd be escorted back downstairs. When the bartender saw him coming back down the stairs, he would take that lady's doll and stand her upright or sit her back upright so that the next gentleman would know if his favorite gal was available. This process was called the doll system and was unique to the Red Onion. So these dolls, we don't have any of the actual dolls um, left in the museum. They were more likely taken with them on to next other gold rush communities um, so the girls could use them there. But as far as I know, we are the only ones that operated on the doll system. Um, the copper tubing that did connect the rooms to the cash register behind the bar did have to be taken out when um, fire marshal insisted, you know, when all of a sudden when Alaska gets its codes up to date, um, that had to come out. Um, so we've got one remaining hole left in the floor, but no copper tubing connecting it. Um, we've got in our brothel museum, it is just a museum nowadays. Um, some of the original wallpaper um, is on the wall still. The smell is history. Like you can just, when, you, when I open the brothel, you can just smell the history. It's amazing. It's got this very old building, unique smell, and it's got all the creaks and groans. There are um, parts of the walls, the exterior walls, that you can see daylight coming through. Um, these buildings were built as temporary structures. So upstairs, when the, when the south wind blows, you can just watch the dust come through the walls. And in the wintertime, it's very, very cold in here. The Red Onion was also the first building in town to have electricity, which gives you a very clear sign of the town's priorities. Skagway had electricity before New York City. That's how exciting this place was and how this was like the new up-and-coming place back in 1898. Um, so we still, the upstairs brothel museum lights are still powered with the old knob and tube wiring. Um, it's pretty cool. You can see it. 
And then we also have some artifacts up there that um, we've collected over the years, but also some that have been found underneath the floorboards. So a lot of the gals would um, hide some of their prized possessions under the floorboards. Um, we found a curling iron. It's a curling iron very similar to what we use today, except um, instead of a pronged end on it to plug into an outlet, it's um, got a light bulb end. So it screws into a light bulb. There was no electricity running through the walls back then because the walls were an inch thick. That's it. There's nowhere to put the electricity. So it was all on the ceiling. And so when a lady wanted to curl her hair, she'd have to unscrew the light bulb, screw the curling iron in, do her hair in the dark, unscrew the curling iron, and screw that light bulb back in. Stashed away in the floor, a bustle pad was found, along with combs and pins. But the most incredible find was found preserved in an old chest. It was a dress and it's um, a linen or a cotton mesh. I haven't done a fiber analysis on it. And then it's got um, silver plated copper pieces wrapped around and squished into place to create the design. It's absolutely stunning. And the design looks like the hierarchy of a brothel. You've got at the top, you've got these lovely women with large skirts going all over the ground. Their hands are on their hips. And those I like to think of as the madams. They're the women that ran this place. And then underneath them, you've got um, little stick ladies with little dresses, long legs, short skirts. Those would be the working girls. And then under them is a row of stick men. Of course, those would be the guys that came to visit with little tick marks, maybe indicating how many times they've been upstairs to the brothel. And then the bottom was finished with another row of the lovely, what I call the madams in their big dresses and their hands on their hips. Um, we think this may have belonged to a madam just because of that design. This would have been a very expensive garment to have made and it weighs about 10 pounds. And it's not even, it's something that this would have been worn as an undergarment. It would not have been something that the whole world got to see. These incredible artifacts were all found upstairs where the women lived and worked. Today, you can still see these rooms and how they would have been set up. One room that we've kind of done up to look like um, a crib room, which a crib is a 10 by 10 room that the girls would have lived in and worked out of. And so in that room, you'll see... Um, some of the old wallpaper and then some more modern wallpaper made to look old. And then there's um, a travel size metal bed. So a travel size bed, they're so narrow. They're, it's really, really narrow bed. And these were the beds, bed frames that the ladies would transport with them from gold rush to gold rush. So the gals never stayed here for very long because they basically were following the money and um, the Alaska gold rushes, they moved like Klondike gold rush, and then it moved to Nome and Fairbanks. And so they traveled where the money was. Turnover rate at the Red Onion was very high. And we know this not because of employee records or any sort of documentation, but because of the wallpaper. One of the perks the women received when working at the Red Onion was that they were allowed by the madam to have their room redecorated to fit their taste. Some rooms had 18 layers of wallpaper. 
Considering that the Red Onion only served as a brothel for two years, that is an incredible amount of women to pass through. So what was life like for these women? Well, it was hard. Very, very hard. Their ability to earn a proper living wage from quote-unquote respectable work was impossible. Prostitution, as it was known at the time, was dangerous. And there were different levels of working conditions and rates of pay. Skagway at the time was your typical rough-and-tumble gold rush town. Unpaved streets, no plumbing, poor sanitation, lots of brawls and violence and murders. But it was also exciting, full of hope and promise. So the way the brothel worked was the madam looked after all the girls. She was the businesswoman woman who ran the place. So she would make sure they were fed, they were clothed, they were taught you know, like educated. They all had medical checks regularly um, because these were her investments. You know, she made sure that her girls were healthy and happy and able to do a good job. So they worked basically 12 hours a day, 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. And then they'd have the days off. Um, Each of the rooms had a door into them from the hallway and then a door into the adjoining rooms. And that was for heat. So during the day, they'd open those doors up and let the heat circulate, but also for safety. So if there was an issue, the girls could escape one of three ways. Um, Occasionally there were issues with some of the men and that's why the bouncer was hired. He would patrol the hall and, um, you know, kind of monitor all that. Sometimes the bouncers weren't always nice. They weren't always great human beings and they would also rough up the girls It was perilous work being in a brothel. But it was better and safer than working on the streets. Um, Because there was also the girls who worked in the cribs on the streets, which were little 10 by 10 shacks that were owned by somebody. And then they worked out of there. Sometimes there was two girls per shack. So you'd have your half of the room with, you know, a sheet down the middle dividing the space. And you're both working. And then there was the girls who worked the streets who um, got paid even less and their safety, very, very risky. And then there was um, an awful place called Yokohama Row, which was where they um, had the, the Asian ladies, the Asian girls, and they were usually really young and they were malfed and they were, they were basically sex slaves. They had no choice, and it was awful. It was absolutely brutal. On top of the unsafe working conditions, disease was rampant in Skagway. It wasn't just malaria, typhoid, dysentery, and cholera, but also waves of sexually transmitted diseases that would plague the town. Syphilis was rampant um, back then. So what, what generally happened is once a gal contracted syphilis, she was no longer useful to the madam or the John or the pimp, whoever. And so brutally, they would brand them with a mark on their face. And that would mean that they were now untouchable. There was also a few people in town who um, would try and help these girls and get them out of town and get them to medical care. There was a few charity organizations that would help with that. 
um, who's this wonderful woman here in town back then who had set up a mission and her whole mission was to get women off the streets and, um, either married off down South. She would find them eligible bachelors down South and pay their ferry ticket or their pass, their steamship passage back South and just get them out of the business. So she, um, she was quite the character of this particular woman, um, um, very religious woman, how she raised money for her mission to help ladies was she would go stand outside the cribs and start preaching the word of the Lord, which of course is bad for business. So they would pay her to leave. And so she'd move on down to the next crib. And that's how she raised money to start her mission to save these women. Even if you could stay free from infections, you still had to contend with turn-of-the-century birth control in order not to find yourself pregnant. We had a few things up here that were used for birth control back then. Um, there were silk condoms, which, as we know, don't work. Um, back then, women would use um, laudanum, which is an opiate. And when you're using laudanum to douche, it women became opiate addicts. Um, so that was an issue. They also used Coca-Cola as a douche. But what happened with that, Coca-Cola had phosphoric acid in it back then. And so what it would do was basically um, eat their insides. It was brutal. After repeated use of these caustic solvents, women either became drug addicts or their insides were literally rotting away. Of course, there were unwanted pregnancies and there was little to do to help these women. One horrendous option was the button hook abortion. Women's shoes at the time did not have zippers, so a button hook would be used to help them fasten up their shoes. Um, they were also used as a tool to facilitate an abortion. Of course, very dangerous. It would be the 1980s equivalent to a coat hanger abortion. Um, very dangerous. And a lot of women, you know, died, had issues, all kinds of stuff. Occasionally women would leave. They would be able to get out and have their babies if they wanted to, but they did a lot of as whatever they could to try and prevent pregnancy. All of this hardship and turmoil sets the stage for the Red Onion's most famous and beloved ghost. And so during the gold rush, women would come up um, on a promise by a gentleman, whether it be a husband, a brother, um, lover. They would come up to Skagway and once they got here and the men found out how difficult it was to get to the gold fields, they would just say, honey, you just wait here and um, I'll come back for you once I've struck it rich or I'll send for you and then you can come and join me. Like there's no point in you making the perilous journey with me. Well, quite often these men would end up dying because the journey was so perilous. So often they died or they met somebody else and then forgot about their lover in Skagway. Um, or they just plain got caught up in the gold rush and forgot about the love of their life that they left here in Skagway. So then those women, of course, would run out of money and would have to make ends meet somehow. So they would turn to the world's oldest profession and they would hopefully go to work in a brothel where you were looked after a little bit better than if you were working on the streets. And so we think that's what happened to Lydia. Lydia may have worked at the Red Onion, but it wasn't for very long. 
Many current staff members and visitors had experienced this Lydia woman. The name had been sourced from numerous mediums who had passed through the building. But they weren't sure how Lydia died or how she had come to haunt the Red Onion. However, one of Corey's team members was a keen sensitive and had garnered enough of a rapport with Lydia for her to show her her demise. How we figured out what happened to her was one of our former employees, she revealed to one of our former employees what had happened to her. And she was seen hanging from the ceiling with a mark on her cheek. So we think she contracted syphilis and took her own life in despair. Um, Lydia is one of the ghosts that does like to be talked about. We do have a couple that do not like to be talked about. Um, And I think that's because um, in her living life, Lydia wasn't really famous, but in her um, spiritual life, she is infamous. And she has been seen um, walking through the brothel. She's always dressed respectably. She likes women, doesn't like men, obviously. Um, And so she will let her presence be known when she feels like it. Um, she's known to, as you're standing there in the brothel, listening to a tour or looking at artifacts or whatever, she will, you know, brush past you. I was talking, um, to a coworker one time and we were kind of arm to arm and Lydia walked past and ran her cold fingers down my co- from my coworker's hand to her elbow and then down my elbow to my hand. And she's like, my coworker turned to me and asked, did you feel that? And I said, yep, let's go. <laughs> Lydia was just letting us know that she was there. Um, I was also up on a ladder one time. Ugh. This was my first summer. It's actually before summer. I was just newly um, curator of the museum and I was hanging big pieces of framed wallpaper and so they're big, precarious, and this is, you know, on the planks, rough plank walls. So I'm up on a ladder, which I'm not really good at anyway, and I'm trying to hang these awkward pieces without getting a bunch of splinters in my forearm. And all of a sudden, I, f- I feel somebody standing behind me. I'm up on a ladder. And my coworker, who sees Lydia regularly, looks at me and she goes, you know, Lydia's standing behind you. I said, uh-huh. Do you think she could give me a hand hanging this frame? (laughs) And that was my introduction to Lydia, was up on a ladder, trying not to fall off, Lydia standing behind me. Corey has seen Lydia's apparition many times, but most of the time, she senses her, feels her presence. Lydia has a very palpable energy. One day at the Red Onion, Lydia was so active, she ran off several members of staff throughout the day. A coworker was giving a tour, and we had that the metal bed frame, the travel size bed frame, it had been hanging on the wall, just kind of over these hooks, so it was kind of loosely hanging on the wall. And um, the tour guide was talking to her people in the room across the hall, finishing up the tour. And she's talking about Lydia. And all of a sudden, the bed frame went and smacked against the wall three times. And so my coworker, she was a prankster. She had played all kinds of jokes on everybody else, assumed that one of the bartenders was playing a joke on her. So she went up to the bed frame, 
and checked for wires or anything that could have made it move like that and found absolutely nothing. So she got freaked out, went back to her tour, said, okay, folks, tour's over. Thank you very much. We got to go. And then later on that day, there was another gal up there, another one of the tour guides that was kind of dusting in the brothel. And she had her back to the door, cleaning one of the cases. And she heard footsteps walk up behind her, felt a tap on her shoulder, turned around, and there was nobody there. So she got freaked out and out she went. But that same day, two of the tour guides were up in our dressing room, which happens to be one of the old crib rooms. And they were changing into their regular clothes from their costumes. And that we had the souvenir garters that we give out, we used to give out to the guests up on um, a shelf. There's no way for them to fall off the shelf easily, but they came flying off the shelf at the girls very deliberately. And they were so freaked out. They grabbed the rest of their clothes and ran out of the brothel. Lydia is understandably not fond of men. And she has been known to push men down the stairs from the brothel into the saloon below. And we always tell people, hang on to the hand railing, especially men, because Lydia has been known to push men down these stairs. Um, there was, we had a cook that worked here who had been getting something from upstairs. And as he was coming down the stairs, leaving the landing, he felt like somebody put two hands on his back and pushed him. Lydia is intelligent, sensitive, and sometimes mischievous. She's a proper girl's girl who does not suffer a fool. So like I said, Lydia likes women, but not so much with men. And um, on this particular day, uh, my coworker was down here, down in the bar, bartending. And um, there was a table sitting kind of close to the bar. And the, the man wasn't being very nice to his wife or partner, whoever she was. He was being kind of rude and you know, a bit of a jerk. And um, he got up and went to the restroom. And when he came back, he went to sit in his chair and his chair suddenly moved out from underneath him. It was pulled away. So he fell on the floor, flat on his back. And my coworker swears she saw a tiny boot print right on his chest. Like Lydia was standing on him and pulled his chair out for being a jerk to his lady friend. There also has been a time when there was dust on the bar and um, a coworker came in and there was tiny boot prints that had walked down the bar. Um, sometimes people have reported that they've been in the building by themselves and it sounds like somebody's walking back and forth upstairs. I don't think that's Lydia. I actually think that's the bouncer because that would have been what he did in his in his living life was pacing back and forth. But some people think it might be Lydia. The bouncer is another ghost at the Red Onion, but he is not remembered so fondly. I won't give you his name because he doesn't like us talking about him. And the fact that I'm even talking about him in the building is um, a bit risky. So please forgive me. Um, he acts up when we talk about him. And working in here sometimes by myself, I don't want him acting up. He's not very pleasant. Um, but he was, from what I gathered, he was murdered upstairs um, in the hallway. He was stabbed to death. Because he was a jerk. 
And he was rude to people and mean and abused the women. So I wouldn't be surprised if one of them decided to um, take care of him. Um, so he does haunt the place. Um, and like I said, he's not very fond of being talked about. Um, but he is the one we think who likes to creep in on the ladies who are changing out of their costumes into their street clothes. Um, he's kind of menacing. He stands out, like you'll hear footsteps come up outside the door and then you open the door and there's nobody there. And it's kind of his thing. One time um, I came into the dressing room. I was doing a lot, like taking care of the costumes. It was early in the morning. The dressing room had just been cleaned. Like it was spotless. It was the cleanest I've ever seen it. And there was this really bad smell of like man B.O. I was like, what is this smell? I mean, it's a dressing room full of women. So I thought, well, maybe somebody's feet were a little funky or something. So I'm sniffing around trying to figure out where this smell is coming from so I can take care of it. It was in the center of the room, about two feet off the floor. I was like, oh, okay. I'm going to go and put these clothes in the wash right now. So I did that. And then a coworker came in. This was early morning. And I had her come into the room and sniff around where she could smell this man B.O. And it had moved. The women were terrified. They fled the building, waited a few hours, allowed their nerves to calm down before they had to return back to the Red Onion to continue their work day. And there, and so we did. And then when we went back, it was, you know, the smell was gone, completely gone. There's nobody else in the building. It was just the two of us. So we assumed that that was um, the bouncer. The bouncer's presence is so strong and forceful. He still dictates when people are allowed into the building. But my coworker came in and she opened the door and she just was met with this wall of menace, I think is the only way I can describe it. So she went to walk in and she just got this sense of, I should not be here right now. And so she turned around, walked back out and gave it about an hour. And then she came back and it felt completely different, completely different. So for some reason, he didn't want anybody in there right now. But that's the thing about the Red Onion. You don't know what you're going to walk into. You may catch the bouncer on a day where he's being particularly malicious or when Lydia is pushing people downstairs. But she isn't always pulling chairs out from underneath men or brushing by people. Sometimes she's just being a little bit naughty. She's a bit of a poltergeist. She likes to play tricks. She will take things and hide them. And you will be looking, you know exactly where you put this item and it's missing. And you'll be looking for it, looking for it, looking for it. And finally, you know, Lydia, please return, whatever. And then a day later it shows up. For example, we had a bra. It was, um, it was a 1950s bra. It was red. It was one of those cone shaped beauties. Um, it was hanging on the wall, um, as a display. And it was in the same spot for about 10 years and hanging on the wall. And then I came in one day and it was gone. It was completely gone. We had had an event and some people had been upstairs in the museum. And so I 
questioned every single one of them. I was like, what happened to this? You guys aren't supposed to touch anything. Like what, where did this bra go? Nobody knew anything about it. For three years, Corey and a coworker searched high and low for this bra, but it was gone, vanished without a trace. And then one day, the same coworker who'd been helping me for years look for this thing comes out and she's like, look what I found in a spot that we had looked repeatedly. She found the bra. And I was like, thank you, Lydia, for returning the bra we've been looking for for three years. It's quite endearing to think about Lydia playing harmless pranks on the staff. Because when you think about what her life would have been like, it's definitely not lighthearted. And her passing and the events that preceded it were absolutely horrifying. Um, I had a uh, lovely lady from Texas and her son um, come on the tour. And at the end of the tour, we're all done. And I you know, told them all the stories and saying goodbye to everybody. And they asked if they could go back and see the spot where Lydia had hung herself. She wanted to take a picture in that spot. I said, sure. So we went back over and um, I have some really lovely um, pieces of historic lingerie hanging or I used to have them hanging there. And um, sometimes they're through the, they're on an exterior wall. If the wind is blowing, they'll kind of flutter a little bit. But this particular day, there was no wind blowing at all. And so we're standing, um, staring at this, looking at the spot where she's taking a picture of where Lydia has appeared, where she'd hung herself. And um, we're talking about Lydia. And all of a sudden the little boy, his, well, he, little boy, he was about 12 years old. So young boy, young man, he, his eyes got huge and he starts pointing. He's like, mom, is that Lydia? As, as the clothes are fluttering. And I was like, oh no, honey, it's not Lydia. It's just the wind. But there was no wind out there. And about a week later, I get this phone call at the Red Onion from this woman saying, did you see the picture I sent? I said, no, I haven't seen it. She's like, do you see Lydia? And I was looking and looking and I couldn't quite see Lydia, but that's when I saw a man. And I was like, oh, and then beside the man is where I saw Lydia. Like you could see their outlines, like even his face, you could see his face and her face. It was so cool. I want to leave you with one more story about the Red Onion and Lydia. Corey video chatted with me from the saloon itself and offered to take me on a virtual tour of the brothel. Of course, I was absolutely delighted. First stop on the tour was to see the madam's dress. However, when we passed through the area where Lydia is seen hanging from the ceiling, the connection cut out. We tried again, lost connection. We tried three times. But every time she passed through that space, the call dropped off. I didn't take it personally, though, because I think it was Lydia telling me I needed to come and visit her in person at the Red Onion and see the dress and her home in the flesh. Alternatively, you can visit the West London Witch Facebook and Instagram to see pictures of the beautiful artifact. Today, the Red Onion is a bar and restaurant and brothel museum and is still owned by a woman. 
The goal of the museum is to honor the hardworking, resourceful women who made their living in the saloon and to educate visitors about their life, death, and afterlife. The women were the crowning jewel and attraction of the Red Onion in 1897 and still are to this day. And through the work Corey and her colleagues are doing, we can look back at them with greater respect, understanding, and appreciation for their struggle and their grit and determination to survive. Yes, if you're ever cruising to Alaska or in Alaska, please stop by and see us at the Red Onion Saloon. Come by, take one of our tours, head up to the Brothel Museum, um, grab a drink. We do, it's a fun, fun happening place. It's a really cool part of history that we don't talk about very often, but really should be talked about a lot. Do you have a spooky story you'd like to share? I'd love to hear it. Drop me an email at thewestlondonwitch at gmail.com or find us on Instagram and Facebook at The West London Witch. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. And come and follow us for additional content on Instagram and Facebook. Until next time, Merry Meet, Merry Part, and Merry Meet again. The West London Witch is created by me, Rebecca Strazina. Our sound designer and production magician is the incredible Danny Cross. Our theme music was bespokely written and performed by the wickedly talented Kyle Hall. Our cover art is the beautiful collaboration between Lizzie Wilson and Jake Bowser. Special thanks to Miss Sinead Bowers, our quality control and biggest cheerleader. And thank you to you, all of our listeners all over the world. These are your stories. Thank you for sharing them.